Welcome to the Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli, along with my friend Barry Schuster, the founding editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. How you doing, Barry? I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks very much for asking. I'm looking forward to talking to our special guest today and finding out how they got in the restaurant business, why they got in the restaurant business, and hearing some pearls of wisdom from them uh, that would be useful to our, our listeners today. Absolutely. And we're going to have some fun because we've got a really good show lined up. So uh, grab a drink, make yourself comfortable, and welcome to the Corner Booth. Hey, Barry, we're really, really fortunate to have uh, industry veteran Mike Shine with us today on the Corner Booth. Michael is the proprietor of Frank's American Revival. He's been a longtime involved person in restaurant associations. Uh, he's been responsible for consulting and teaching uh, many others in the industry. So, Mike, welcome to the Corner Booth. Thank you guys for having me. Well, Mike, uh, uh, as always, I like to start out uh, talking to our guests about how they got into this business, uh, um, which is um, it's always interesting, you know, what got you down this path uh, to lead you to the success you enjoy today? You know, I, I, I don't think I've ever worked inside or outside of this particular industry very directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started in this industry at 14 years old. I uh, my mom and dad were divorced and I needed to go to work and so I went up to a McDonald's on Route 66 in Oklahoma City and they hired me on Saturdays as a burger guy. Mm-hmm. And that's when McDonald's had fries, a single, a double, and, and they just launched the Big Mac while I was there. And so I remember... Okay, that was a while ago. That was a long time ago. <laughs> that, was in the, that, was in the, that's it. that was in the late 60s and uh, or mid-60s, I should say. And so that was my first... I guess adventure into the system. I got recruited away by Long John Silver's, which is next door. And, sure. You know, got called away for another 12 cents an hour, I think it was, and that didn't work. And anyway, <laughs> bottom line is, is all different places I worked as a waiter, even in high school, when non-alcohol venues in Oklahoma City, and went into college and bartended and waited tables. When I left uh, college, I left college as a senior. My wife, Cheryl, and I had married. She very quickly became pregnant, and... Uh, uh, Chris was on his way, and uh, I had an opportunity with a guy named Jay Chick, who was a rancher and uh, property owner in the Oklahoma and Kansas area. He had the majority interest and founded Sirloin Stockades. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Chick asked me if I'd be interested in going in and working as a manager, and I did. I went to work in a location. Back then, Sirloin was not the kind of a buffet uh, concept that it became over the last uh, 10 years or 12 years. Mm-hmm. It was actually walk up to the counter, sit down, you know, place your order, that kind of thing. And so I did. I, within a year or two, he made, they made me the general manager of Edmond, Oklahoma, and um, was doing very well. And a guy named uh, Fred Shaw would come into the restaurant from Kansas almost twice a week. It was in the insurance business, and Mr. Shaw was a regular customer. He'd say to me, this is the best restaurant I eat in in six states that I travel. And he, he was a wonderful guy. He came in sometime, I don't remember, a couple of years after uh, I had begun, about two and a half years and he offered me an opportunity. He said he wanted to become the original franchisee, the first of Godfather's Pizza. And I said, okay. And he said, I think you could do it for me, Mike. He said, will you help me? I don't know anything about food other than eating. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, Mr. Shaw, I didn't know what to say to him really. So I said, I'm happy to do that. 
Bottom line is the next week we flew in his Super King Air to Omaha. We met with Willie Thiessen, who founded the original Godfathers. We met within a week, he cut a deal, and I became his operations director at a very early, early age of like 22 years old. What a deal. Wow. And so from that particular point, I moved to Beaumont. I built all of the Beaumont, Southeast Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi stores. I hired someone to take Oklahoma and Kansas, and I think when I left the company, we were about 445 or 46 restaurants. Um, so I, 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 that's the that's the primary focus of where I began in the industry, and then from that I, I began to move into consulting relationships and others. And so, really, since that time, I've never really been an employee of anyone within our industry. I've always been self-employed or worked under contract in some way, and so on and so forth. But uh, it's a long story. You probably ask me some of it later, but I'll tell you more about it. Barry, this is a good time for us to send some special thanks to all those who support the independent restaurant operating community, like today's sponsor, Lone Star Liquor Licensing Company. Our friends Gerald and Keith are the premier authorities on the subject of liquor license process for sale of liquor, beer, and wine in all restaurants and bars. So, hey, listeners, whether your needs are retail, catering, wholesale, or manufacturing licensing, whether you're opening or maybe you're considering renewing your permit, or just have compliance questions, contact the folks at Lone Star Liquor Licensing at LoneStarLiquorLicense.com. What brought you then to, was it, was it Godfather's expansion that brought you, I guess, into the Texas market? It did. We had okay. no, we had to, we, we, we signed the deal for Kansas, all of Kansas, all of Oklahoma, Southeast Texas, which is basically Beaumont, Houston, mm-hmm. and so forth, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And so uh, the first restaurant that I opened was in uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. Uh, we nice. were looking at locations in, in, in Houston. And so here by then I had two sons. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do with my family? So we bought a house in Beaumont. So it was basically, in a way, between New Orleans and Houston. And my wife's brother lived in Orange, Texas. So I knew that my family would be there because Michael was there, her brother. and. So we did that, and so that's what brought us to Texas. I grew up in Dallas for the most part of my life. I was mm-hmm. born in Dallas, and so a lot of family, friends, relationships in the Dallas marketplace, but didn't have a lot of relationships in Houston when we did that. But, mm-hmm. you know, you got, at that time, Godfathers in the south part of South, of south you know, we had 26 restaurants before there was another franchisee wow. in Godfathers. Godfathers never had any systems whatsoever. And so from a franchise perspective or operating system. So we no wrote our kidding. own policy manuals, our own training programs. We did everything because it did not exist. Wow. What we bought was a right to use the name, the dough recipe and sauce recipe, and kind of how Willie did it in Omaha 1, so to speak. And that was really it. We really had to develop it. And it became uh, quite a significant thing, as you can imagine. It now did. it went on to something pretty special. But that's how we began. Mr. Shaw and I were really... the without tooting anybody's horn, we were the people that kind of first put it on the map mm-hmm. and uh, really gave it its its legs and, and went forward. And so that's a, a little bit about that that environment. What a wonderful start. Mm-hmm. What a great way to learn. Yeah, like, sure. say, here it is. Now you expansion. figure it out. Yeah. Was it by the seat of your pants or um, where were you? No, in a way it was by the seat of my pants and that, and that we, I really didn't have that experience. It talked about developing multi-unit systems, if uh-huh. you will. So, you know, I made a lot of phone calls to people that were there. I would uh, call back and talk to people at uh, Sirloin Stockade because at that time Sirloin had 19 locations and uh, Jay Chick who was the guy that owned Sirloin and the rancher was close to my dad so I would call Jay and say who's handling your restaurants you need can you help me and so mm-hmm. I'd go back and forth to see my mom and my step my, my mom stepdad and my dad and 
you know, I would meet with Mr. Chick's people and he would talk about, well, how do you guys do that? And so, you know, I'd write it down and kind of work back. And at that time, uh -huh. you know, we'd have, the, we'd have the luxury of Google to say, okay, no. the training manual, you know, restaurant operations. And so wow. you had to just kind of formulate it. So uh, we just kind of worked and built as you want. And so I wrote the original new 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 uh, store opening plan, you know, the, the, the construction checklist, all those kinds of things, just using colleagues and friends, the original location in Lake Charles. I used the contractor that was a, that never, he built two restaurants, mom and pop restaurants in Lake Charles, and I asked him just to outline for me the steps and timetable for how he built those. So he hands them to me on a handwritten legal pad, like 12 pages. Mm -hmm. Well, let's see, three days out, four weeks out, we did this way. And I took that and I built basically a new store opening plan wow. and handed it to all the potential contractors. But <laughs> <laughs> I typed it up, you know, I typed it up on, on a... Uh, on a typewriter, not the computer. Well, Godfathers so. only knew how everything was developed. I can right. Mike doing his homework on yeah. a legal pad. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, it was a very interesting, but yet a very learned experience. I mean, I literally, as Chris can tell you, and you with your publication, you can't be taught how to do this in this industry, whether it be operate restaurants or even consult and advise others. Mm -hmm. It's something you have to have hands-on experience with, some referrals and passion as to how we do that, and some measured success. Mm -hmm. Somebody had success, maybe not you, but you can say you might try this, it That's worked right. for so-and-so. And so it was a great, I couldn't have paid for that kind of a lesson. Wow. Well, where did you go next? Uh, you left uh, after all of that work with Godfathers, well, you left and did what? We did. Mr. Shaw was in a position in his life with his health and his family that that he wanted to make a change, and, and he, he didn't want to try to sell the company, uh, AFAM Enterprises, which continued for a while uh, as a bulk unit of restaurants. He wanted to kind of pick and choose them and sell them off. During this time with Godfathers, we were hurting people like Pizza Inn. You know, our restaurants were coming in and we were averaging $49,000, a week, you know, fa fast casual counter service pizza mm -hmm. operations. Wow. Back in the 70s, it was a then. lot of volume. Yeah. And, and so, pizza. Joe Spillman, I met Joe Spillman one afternoon in Dallas, Texas, and uh, uh, who founded Pizza Inns. And from that time on, he was after me a lot. He would come to Houston. I'd see him and even in, I saw him in Alexandria, Louisiana. There was a franchise pizza hut there. I mean, Pizza Inn there. And and I saw him in, in town and he said, I hear you're building a new restaurant. And I said, I am Mr. Spillman. I mean, what are you doing here? He says, well, we have a hut, right? You know, that one right there. And I said, yes, sir. He says, trying to do something with the franchisee. And so bottom line is, is for several years, he pursued me, meaning, can you help me? My franchise system is not that strong. I really yeah. like what you guys are doing. I like the way you communicate to your team. You're doing amazing revenue in your restaurants when you open up. You don't really have a national program behind you. Uh, you know, I'm much bigger than you and you're hurting me. Bottom line is what he said. And so a lot of conversations later when I made the decision that I'd done all I felt like I could do with Mr. Shaw, then um, I took him up on his offer and I reached a deal. I did a two-year contract as a consultant okay. uh, with Joe that I would try to go in and take a look at the 30 or 40 really restaurants that they were uncomfortable with. Either they were not adhering to franchise policy, underperforming, which most of those were, and or needing to make a change to either change or sell the franchise or relaunch the franchise or something. And so I did that. That really launched me into a consulting career. Mm -hmm. I knew pizza. I yeah. knew the guest. I knew what the guest was going to want. And I basically knew, for the most part, managing a team of people as to how do you get that pizza in the oven and get it out. And so we did that. We were able to go in and do that. So during that particular time, I, uh, I met a lot of people in a lot of cities. I already knew a lot in the Dallas market. And so 
uh, I began to, people were asking me if I could help them. Um, I remember Mario and Leticia Hernandez had started, they had two restaurants in Oklahoma City called Cocina de Mino. And um, Mino means, Mino is Mario's nicknames. And, and uh, Mario had two restaurants, uh, one on the south side of Oklahoma City and, and one in the Norman area. And Mario was doing just phenomenal dollars with Mexican restaurants. It was huge numbers. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he was likened to El Phoenix and Dallas in terms of the revenue that we could figure out at that time. And so he wanted to grow. So I helped him build a commissary. Uh, to, okay. to, to basically make everything in-house in the commissary and distribute it. Now it'd be souvide in a way or others and distribute that. How do we reheat that and so forth? And so the restaurants, we got it to the point. This is even during Pizza Inn that I was doing under contract to assist them. Uh, basically, they made rice in the morning in the restaurants and at night and everything else was made in advance. Mm -hmm. And they pre-marinated all fajitas, beef, chicken, whatever, and they finished them. But everything else, the enchilada sauces, all that, they rolled enchiladas daily, but all the sauces, all the seasonings, all the salsas, all the pre-mixes that had to be done was done in a commissary. And this was you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Wow. That obviously created other relationships. I became a, a consultant with the, 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 the Matt's El Rancho group, the family, Mr. and Mrs. Martinez and Matt and Estella in Dallas with the El Rancho group, uh, Rancho Martinez group. Mm -hmm. That kind of springboarded into, I developed close relationship with Chef Stephen Piles and Dean Faring and, mm -hmm. and Chef Faring, at, he was at the mansion at the time. And, and those relationships were not operating relationships, operations, because both Stephen and, and Dean had great resources with the mansion on Turtle Creek and the Hunt family and others, but they wanted to put their product in jars and sell it in specialty food areas. And mm -hmm. so I began to assist them. How do we take that, that yellow tomato salsa, Dean, and get that shelf stable and get that with your label or mansion's label on it and get that into the grocery stores or specialty foods and mm -hmm. the distribution level. So I kind of took a little bit of a side turn and began to work in food in a different area. So I became very involved in the fancy food show and other kinds of things, yeah, as sure. to how, which created even more revenue opportunities for me as a consultant and an advisor. And so uh, it just continued to springboard. And um, so I spent a great deal of time as other restaurants continued to ask for help. Um, we continued to do that and so worked in a lot of different areas as it relates to not only packaged food, but also restaurants wanting to expand, raise money, mm -hmm. fix what they have. Chris knows all about these things that I'm talking about. Well, you know, let's, you know, let's tell the listeners some of the, maybe the commonality. Uh, if, you're, if you're working with, say, the independent restaurant operator, <clears throat> what are the key things that they typically need you to see, assess, uh, help them improve? I think, I think without a doubt, even in the late 70s and the 80s, all through the 80s, the, the, key, the key issue with independent restaurateurs is rarely their food, their service, their quality, their hospitality, or even their location. The primary reason is, is they just undercapitalize. Mm -hmm. uh, they just okay. don't have enough capital to make it work. Those numbers, I don't know if I can do them off the top of my head, that say, you know, some 75% of first-year restaurants go under. That's not probably a poor analogy in terms of what's really happening. It's not because they're not good restaurants. It's because they don't have enough money to, to weather the, the peaks and the valleys of our industry. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have enough to, to weather that that uh, that week where the um, what's the old adage the the, the the payroll and the rent hits the same day, you know, and they've got to have that capital. Uh, so it really, uh, the, in in other ways, they didn't really develop a strong performa or business plan uh -huh. 
that really talks about what I'm going to have and work through it from a yeah. what I call a negative perspective. Write it out as if you think this is what's going to happen and then prove it wrong. The worst Tell case. yourself what's the worst case scenario. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time with restaurateurs, small single units or even small multi multi units saying the way you fix this is to work at it backwards. This is what you're doing. What's the worst case scenario? Well, I think if we raise the sales 10%, then I think we're going to be able to get this thing even the way that are at. Well, raise it 2% and tell me how you're going to do it. Right. Well, research and academic research in hospitality certainly <clears throat> um, validates that as the number one reason why uh, uh, restaurants fail. But in terms of um, the reason for that, is it uh, being overly optimistic? Is it lack of financial acumen? What are the weaknesses that are causing these operators to go into this without really a a sense of how much operating cash flow they're going to have to generate to finally get to a place where the restaurant is actually sustainable. Well, if they, even if they've been in the industry or, or have not been in the industry either way, I don't think they understand the the small margins that, as you guys know, we have mm -hmm. in our industry. Sure. So they don't realize the control mechanisms that have to be in place. And so, if they have no multi-unit background, generally speaking, they don't know how to manage the business weekly, daily, and so on and so forth. Right. So it's a, it's a and it's still a significant problem in our industry for sure. independent restaurateurs or even small multi-unit. They can't tell you what their labor was last week, last month. And I, I believe that, and I always have, that you, you have to do, quote unquote, a mini P&L every week. If you're not doing daily controls, you're out of business. You can't fix it. You can't manage it. It's too late to manage your business by when the CPA tells me I you know, lost money. Well, you're two months late by then now. It's too late. Yeah, you've lost the whole quarter. Right. But, but Mike, um, you know, based on your extensive experience, is there really an excuse for that anymore with the kind of technology that's available through POS systems and dashboard analytics? Is it really an excuse not to be able to maintain, uh, uh, to monitor and maintain your operating cash flow and understand your labor costs and food costs or um, am I giving the technology too much credit? Well, I don't think it should be. I, I think it goes back to when you're when you're evaluating a potential client, let's say, or a friend that you're just trying to help. Mm -hmm. The first question that I always ask is, tell me about your experience in the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if they tell me they've never been in the industry, I know that's a different conversation needs to take place. Sure. Tell me your understanding of a financial model within a restaurant. What do you think your food cost should be? Well, I've got this great menu, and this is what I think we can do with this menu. What's that going to cost? Sure. And so that's the first fundamental that we have to start with and move forward. There certainly, Barry, are great software availabilities today that we didn't have years ago. Right. Uh, from Restaurant 365 to Compete to all those sure. kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But the mentality still has to be there that can I manage the business daily, weekly, and monthly without that software system. You assistance. know, that, that's a good point that people just need to make a note of, though, because that's the second time I think you brought it up, and it is very common that the independent operator needs to understand that <clears throat> that uh, we're running the business every day, and if we don't at least manage it by the week, we're running it daily, but if we don't manage it by the week, if they don't have weekly numbers, then by the end of that period, by the time they get the P&L 15, 20 days later, it's too late. Today's operator can't wait to May. To, to learn how April went, right. you know, they, they're really looking at maybe the P&L that they get more for 
confirmation rather than information if they're doing it right. I mean, if they listen to you. Yeah. If they're doing I, it right. I think that's the advantage, and I think the percentage of, of success goes up dramatically when they do that, and the percentage of less failure goes down when they do that. The, the yeah. Theoretically, as you just said, Chris, is that when the when the CPA or a bookkeeper produces the financial for January, mm -hmm. they're just looking, saying, yeah, that's pretty much what I have. Right. But if you don't have control of that food and labor number, which you and I both know right. is 60 points or more. Every week. Uh, every single week, and you don't have control of that labor, which, no, we can't exceed 30, 32, or we're out of business. Uh, and in today's marketplace, especially in Houston and other parts of the world where you have significant real estate and overhead problems with cost, that, that uh, the, the, um, the folks that own properties in America, specifically here in Houston, don't realize who we are as a restaurant group and entity we can't pay what they want for that property, mm -hmm. but neither can the, neither can the retailers that continue to close after their first year lease. Well, leases. that's <laughs> a good point because <laughs> boutique retailing is is becoming, uh, you know, a, a dying sector with Amazon that's, and so forth. That's it's, exactly right. It's really been the restaurants that have been saving the uh, landlords in strip malls and other uh, locations. So, you know, I. I, I I've got to wonder at some point they're going to figure that out and make it easier for operators to stay in business. Well, I think, Barry, from my experience with clients and friends and colleagues in my own restaurants, as an example, mm -hmm. is what happens is, is that you know, they, they see themselves, not to belittle people that own real estate or commercial real estate property, but they see themselves as offering a step-up lease where there are increases in base rents over a period of time. Uh, and that's going to help us. Well, that just simply says that for a period of time, you're going to be making money. But at some point in time, that's going to level out. You're not going to be able to make it anymore. Mm -hmm. And there's no way to renegotiate that lease at that particular moment. So then you have no no choice but to move it, fold it, close it, yeah. whatever the case may be. And so that that's a problem. But as a restaurateur, small restaurateur, you have to look at that lease over whatever the term of the lease is. You can't say to yourself, well, look, I've got a 10-year lease. And I might have one five-year option or one two-year option. Well, I can make it work. The first three years, I probably won't make it work. But maybe the fourth or fifth, I think I can increase the sales by then, by then. And so everything will be okay. No. Prove that concept over the first 10 years. Then you've got probably an 80% chance of succeeding financially. Mm -hmm. Make that thing work. Tell me what you're going to do with your first one, two, three, four, five, and six. What if that revenue goes down 4% instead of up 10%? What, what changes can you make? Can you make any changes in that? So do more than a one-year performa, as you and I would talk right. about. Do a two, three, four, even a five-year. Take a risk at it and evaluate it. So every other business does. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. I want to take a little sidebar here because um, uh, we were talking uh, offline, and um, I didn't realize this. I know Chris did, that uh, you're not only very involved in the Texas Restaurant Association. You were former president. And my um, impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but particularly in other states that I've worked with, uh, some of the independents say, you know what, uh, I'm glad they're there, I'm glad they're talking to people in the state capitol, I'm glad they're doing all this political action stuff, but I'll let the chain members pay for all that. What, what am I really getting out of being a state restaurant association member? And you bring a very interesting perspective as an operator and as a consultant. So you're in a business, particularly as a consultant, to tell it like it is. Um, what do you tell the the independent operator who says, you know, that's fine, but I don't think I'm going to belong to the SRA. I, I, I only got one or two units. What are they doing for me? It's really a very simple answer because I, I fell into the same mode. I, I hear you saying, hey, the Brinker Internationals are going to be the TRA's funding in terms of membership and mm -hmm. so forth. 
and the power of their personnel in terms of their long success, Norman's success, is going to give the TRA what they're going to need, and I'm going to benefit from that just because I'm a member. A free ride. But what's missing with that entire relationship or that entire conversation is the personal relationships that I developed or anybody develops with those people, not only at Brinker, but the small local local, local mom and pop operators, even the Gallows mm -hmm. and Delray mm -hmm. or whatever. Those relationships are valued far more than the political cloud of Texas Restaurant Association or the Greater Houston Restaurant Association. And what's that do for the single unit operator? It's amazing to, what it does for them. I'm, I can pick up the phone and call people that, that they wouldn't be able to call today because they're friends because of my relationships with them as a part of the Restaurant Association all over yeah. the country. Right. How do you handle that? Right. What did you get? Do you know this real estate guy? Do you know that landlord? How, who are you buying from? I want to buy from so and so. They want to pitch me, but tell me your experience with them. So you're leveraging the collegiality of the industry by being uh, a familiar face. That's correct. And there's, a, there's some local relationships that even benefit. I mean, I've yeah. had some difficulty expanding uh, my current restaurant at Frank's because of some, li not licensing, but some permitting issues and so on and so forth with the property and landlords and so forth. But I, because I've been an executive at the Greater Houston Restaurant Association and lobbied at City Hall and lobbied many of the public works and architect and permitting on issues over the years as a president and just a member of the board, mm -hmm. I have relationships with many of those people in those permitting offices. And so I was able to call directly to department heads mm -hmm. or people that are in senior positions and say, I I don't know what to do. Who can I talk to in public works about this issue? Right. And they got me to the right people instead of, I'm so-and-so, I own a sandwich shop, what do I do? Yeah. No, I mean, so there's political leverage mm -hmm. that we have both in Washington, at the state level, as well as local level, by being an active member and participating. That's an important message for I our think readers, so. isn't it? I hope, uh, yeah, I hope listeners uh, get a hold of that, because no matter where they are, there's a local chapter. No matter what state you're in, there's a state restaurant association. And I'm sure they have thought about, hey, I'm just a small guy, and you know, I'm watching my pennies. But everything that they're doing for the government, I'm going to benefit from anywhere. But I would add to Mike's comments that not only do you miss out on the network, but you'll miss out on education. Because mm -hmm. when you're so involved in working in your business, there's very few opportunities to step back and work on your business. There's the online restaurantowner.com that I, I think is just the single best on, on web today collection of information. And then there's associations that keep you current between their newsletters, memos, and workshops and whatnot that you can attend just to stay current. So if you're the small guy and you're listening out there, that <clears throat> the networking and education is what associations offer that you're just not gonna get if you don't participate. So, Mike, your consulting business just kept building and building. The demand for your expertise was blossoming. Um, your involvement with the SRA. I mean, you're a pretty busy guy. And a lot of consultants like Chris who are respected and successful, that's the path that they stay on. Sure. But you decided to come back and be an operator um, when it sounds to me that you could have said, okay, I've been there, done that. I think I'll help other people grow. I did what, what, drew, what drew you back into that world? I, I did do that. Part, part of it is being involved at a high level in the restaurant association itself. I had interest in, you know, six, eight, a dozen restaurants around the country, if you will, limited partnership interest. I tell them what I think I should do. I really can't implement what I think I should do. It either works or it doesn't work, but it doesn't work. They call me to fix mm -hmm. it again. I do the same thing. So it can be fairly unfulfilling. Chris is mm -hmm. nodding his head. He knows what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah. yeah you yeah. bill them and they do it or they don't do it. And so it wasn't there. But I had a very, uh, very fortunate now, but a very unfortunate, significant medical procedure a little over eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking. I didn't know I was going to have it. I'd never had a cavity. And, and so when I got through that surgery, I was still in my second term as the Houston chapter president. And I, 
I, at 55 years old, I was thinking about how, what am I going to do? This is a heart issue. I'm going to, how am I going to end my career now? Do I want to keep flying around the country looking for jobs every day, looking for work? As a consultant, they don't just call you. you got You've to. got to develop the business, much like you do with subscribers, I'm assuming. Well, you have to beat the bushes. Exactly. And I think, am I going to keep doing that? What am I going to do? And so uh, I'm, I made a decision that I wanted to really go back to some of my roots in the industry and begin to develop restaurants again. And my wife was concerned about that. Mm -hmm. And um, but I also had two of my four sons were involved in the industry at the time, and they still are, and they're my partners in this restaurant. Mm -hmm. I felt like it'd be a great opportunity in the end of my career, if you will, that I didn't see myself retiring. Um, but at the end of my career, I could give back not only to me, but to them and put them in a situation where they might get a jump start on being a part of an equity or ownership group, being a part uh -huh. of I own it instead of. Yeah. Uh, but I needed to be back emotionally in a situation where I could, theoretically, I'm not kidding, I had, to, I had to get in a position to get through after this surgery where I could talk to the guest on Friday night, be in the dining room talking to people, go in the right. kitchen saying, I don't like that. It could be even morning, we're going to fix this, I don't like the way we're doing that, whatever. I needed that emotionally back in my life personally to give me the emotional strength to kind of get through that surgery and other things that I had to do after that. Uh, and it was the best thing I ever possibly could do. Uh, and so that's why I did it. You know, and how many years ago was that Frank's opened? We bought the restaurant eight years ago. Oh, it was wow. Frank's Chop House and, and a little less than we're, we're approaching eight coming up. Mm -hmm. And we changed it to Frank's Americana. Uh, a very similar menu format, but we did change some things about it. But um, so and we're, we're getting ready to grow. We're getting ready to uh, to launch a, a, a concept called Mick and Nell's, which is my Irish grandparents nicknames. Um, uh, was very much what we planned to do with Frank's Chop House when we bought it. Uh, but there was a number of people that knew it as Frank's. I didn't like that Chop House. It wasn't a classic Chop House. And no. so I just, one night in the middle of the night, I just called my son Chris my, and said, you know, I, why don't we just leave it Frank's and, you know, do something with that Chop House thing. So we did Americana Revival with it and kept it. But we, we planned to do something else with Mick and Nell's and other things as well. We're looking at acquiring other restaurants, turnarounds, much like I did with Frank's. But I had to wait until I built these private dining rooms. I, I doubled, not doubled, but I built another 50% more in space, uh, 2,000 more square feet in private dining areas. Chris has been in there a couple of times, another kitchen mm -hmm. in there, and that type of thing. I need to financially get through that before we start looking at other restaurants. So sure. that's what we did the last couple of years. So, um, you know, we tell a lot of signal unit operators, you know, before you think about going to number two or three, really just get as much horsepower out of that single unit as possible. And what are the kind of things you look at when you're looking at, you know, that single unit going, hey, you know, where can we look to build top line, bottom line, you know, guest traffic, uh, use of space, um, ambience, uh, you know, what kind of things, are you, you know, you're a consultant now looking at your own business. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. kind of things are, what kind of things are you, are you looking at critically every single day when you walk in there? Well, and I, I'm the most critical person on my own business because I see it from the outside looking in, but I see it from the inside looking in as well. Right. So there's not a day goes by that I say, we're not doing this the way that I think we should do. If mm -hmm. I was outside, didn't own it, what would I do? I would be fixing this. Mm -hmm. And so I have to talk to myself that way. But we have kind of a unique scenario as well with Colin and Chris involved with me. My youngest son is my chef. Mm -hmm. And so I had, to, I had to change my personality a bit in terms of my management style because I don't run the restaurant, we run the restaurant. Right. I'm the ultimate decision maker, but I needed to encourage and foster them to take full ownership and responsibility. And so there are days when there's decisions to be made and I'll wait and say, well, if I wasn't here, what would you do? They hate that. 
And why is but that? But I would imagine your years I am here. They'd okay. rather I just make the call and uh-huh. argue with me about what a call I made, you know? Gotcha. I mean, All right. doesn't work at your fault, Dad, so to speak. But I felt like they wouldn't get anywhere if I was running the restaurant every day, telling everyone what to do. Mm-hmm. They need to run the restaurant, and they do. Chris runs the front of the house, and Colin runs the back of the house. And I'm there, but, but at the same time, they're running it. They, they're as much a part of it as I am. And I felt like that was important for their career. It's also was important for my career Mm -hmm. and that I'm still mentoring and coaching and teaching, not as their consultant, but more as their general partner and owner. Does that make sense? Sure. Well, it sounds like uh, the years of consulting help set up for that because, yeah, because it does. The idea of that's what I'm hearing is the idea of I want to set the example. I want them to decide. I want to help. I'll direct. I'll recommend. But they've got to do it. This way I'm nurturing them and building for the future, much like sort of a consultant client relationship. But it's a dad with sons. That's Very right. interesting. And there's some limitations. I mean, I'm 65 now. Mm-hmm. I don't have the energy I once had. And so I get more tired than I used to. And mm-hmm. so I'm able to rely on them that says, oh, let me close for you on Tuesday night so I can, the team doesn't get intimidated by me. I can see what they see. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to do Saturday and Sunday for you. No, you guys got to deal with that <laughs> yourself. Now, you, you, learned, you learned a lot in the trenches doing the work. Um, you know, for younger operators thinking, well, gee, you know, maybe that's the way I need to uh, build my credibility. But did you push your sons to get any formal education in hospitality or culinary training? Or did you say, listen, the way you do it is you, you, you roll up your sleeves and you, you do it by learn you do it by doing it? No, that's an interesting question, Barry. I mean, no, no, they both have degrees from Texas business and Collins and in, in, uh, both of them in, in business. Economics mm-hmm. is Colin, Chris's business. Sure. Uh, from from Texas and um, um, Chris just continued in our industry, worked in our industry, continued to be in our. They, they all, when they were young at the house, needed money. I didn't just give them money. I'd call buddies like Chris Pappas and others and say, "Hey, Aaron's going to be a senior. He needs a job. Right. We'll call so and so over at Papa Do's, whatever, <laughs> or call somebody at Taco Cabana or whatever, and they'd go to work waiting tables or whatever the case may be. Sure. All, did, all four of them did that all through college. So when we when we uh, Chris was a national trainer. My oldest was a national trainer for P.F. Chang's and and, uh, had left that, and he was bartending on the west side of Houston, had my first grandson who was four at the time. And I know know what our family's like. It's four in the morning, we're in the bar. That's not a good thing for anybody, you know, when he's working in the bar. And so when I decided I want to try to buy a restaurant or do something, the first thing I said to Chris was, would you do it with me? Mm -hmm. Because I think you got the great skills in the front of the house, got a great personality, you got a solid mind behind you. His experience was as a waiter and as a bartender, not any management role whatsoever, although he has had some management industry. Colin really was a different scenario. Colin's got his degree. Uh, he had gone to, he just gotten back, he was living in Austin, had just gotten back from Argentina. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on a sabbatical with a group of um, uh, um, Texas uh, professors and, and grad students teaching economics mm-hmm. at the University of Cordoba. Wow. And weekends are going skiing in Mendoza, I don't know, chasing girls, who knows what they're Having sure. fun. He'd gotten back after that, he was in Austin, and, and he, he heard, he knew we were buying the restaurant. He called his brother the day, first day we owned the restaurant, and Chris, and he said, I want in. Mm-hmm. Chris says, what do, you, what do you mean you want in? He says, I want to come help you guys. Nothing, keep. I'm not dating anybody here. I'm just bartending. I'm making good money, but you can put me in the bar. I'll make my money there. You know what I can do. I can wait tables, put dish. I'll, I'll work for free. Mm-hmm. I know you and Dad are going to do something special with that. And Chris gave him the, well, Dad's not going to let you work for free. Well, this is the first day we didn't even know what we bought. Yeah. I don't look to tell you, man. You got to talk to Dad. So he does the same thing with me. Except in the same conversation with him, he says, now, Dad, I talked to Mom. Mm-hmm. 
What does, mom, what does mom have to do with this? So mom <laughs> said I can listen, Dad. I can put my stuff in storage and live upstairs for six months and don't worry about what I made. Just put me in the bar, put me on the floor. And so, you know, I, of course, called mom and she said, you hired him, didn't you? I mean, get her baby. That was a smart approach. I'm going to talk to mom first. But Colin, Colin <laughs> all through high school and college, always wanted to pursue culinary. And so he would ask me about, can you get me into Hyde Park, CIA and Hyde Park? And mm -hmm. you, I'd say, yeah, I can get you in, but you still have the same problem when you get out. You got this big degree from Texas or this big culinary degree. You still mm -hmm. don't have the day-to-day -day experience. You're, gonna, you're still not going to make any money in our industry right. anyway, but right. if you want right. to make any money, you're not going to have to get it. So after we got him over there, we basically I asked him if he'd be interested in culinary. So we put him in the kitchen as a sous chef. Mm -hmm. And he spent two and a half years in there as a part of the team learning. And then... Uh, three years ago, I asked him if he'd take the role as the chef, the wow. executive chef. He didn't want to do it. He said, I, didn't, I don't have the degree for this. Yeah, but. but he realized that it's not about creating the dishes. That's the easy part. Right. It's about managing and communicating and repairing and ordering and controlling. And not wasting. Exactly. That's yeah. when he learned that, you know what, I can do this because he's a great manager. He's a great, he speaks fluent Spanish. And so. Which is very important. And Christopher learned the same kind of thing, you mm -hmm. know, but th their experience with, with <coughs> our industry management mm -hmm. was a supervisor somewhere or a multi-unit guy or gal mm -hmm. that they worked with. They never really, other than seeing me involved yeah. as youngsters, they never really saw what's it like to manage a single restaurant. What's that yeah. really like? They knew what it was like, whatever it takes, mm -hmm. whatever you got to do, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. And it, you have to have a passion for this business. It's not a business for someone that's faint-hearted. Mm -hmm. You got to love dealing with people. You have to love serving people. Uh, you know, you have to love taking care of folks, both employee and customer. All right. Because, you know, we've got 56 kids in our building. Mm -hmm. They're not my kids, but they are. They act right. like my kids. Sure. And so our industry is unlike that of anyone else's. We have that industry. Many of them are high school kids or college kids or uh, whatever the case may be. And so many, some have families, so on and so forth. But you've got to have a real passion for our industry and communicating with people. Mm -hmm. So Frank's has been doing well. Congratulations. Thanks. Real proud of that. And um, can, you, can you tell us how you determined to uh, develop more of that private party business, which led to the expansion, taking over lease space, more construction. We did, I mean, we, we, there were spaces next to us, Chris, first of all, was a nail salon and a dry cleaners that I discovered from the property owners that they were on a month to month leases. And so I, uh, it looked like he was un, unwilling to really do anything long-term with either one of them. So that set the space up available when I sat down with him and said, if I would take it, what would you be willing to do? But the key decision was is that the first five years that we were in business, we'd already turned the business around. We were up 60% over what our original volume was year one. Uh, we obviously had turned this thing around and making it work. But I was, we were noticing that every December, we were turning down 20, 25 requests for Christmas parties because there's no, no private table, no private space in the restaurant at all. There were also limitations that we had with the menu. We couldn't do any delicate baking at all because the, the oven in the kitchen, original kitchen's back, over by the fryer and the salad area. So the humidity is unbelievable. There's no room to work. And so there's structural issues with the equipment in the kitchen that was limiting our ability to be more progressive with the menu, do some things to experiment and so forth. And so uh, I just looked, sat down and looked at the numbers and said, how much of that loss of business in December could I equate over 12 months, theoretically? What would happen in December? Do we have a clientele in this community that we could book private events? And so knowing folks in the industry, I picked up the phone and started to call. What are you doing lunch business in your private room? You know, mm -hmm. Some of them are clients or friends or whatever. 
And so I just sat down and developed a performer that said, all right, if I could acquire this space, what would it take? So on and so forth. And so we did that. We built a financial model that said, here's what our revenue has to be. And then we began doing that. It took us a, a, a few, two years longer than we'd originally planned for some uh, crazy reasons, but got unlucky on a couple of things with the property owners. But but um, it's a great venue. You've been in there a couple of times. Multiple yeah, rooms. Seems to be working. Place. Um, if you want to do a private event or a meeting today in Houston, generally speaking, you're going to do it in a hotel somewhere. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to do a 20 dinner or lunch, if you will, uh, without some significant cost somewhere. Mm -hmm. And to us, we just want to agree upon a menu, let us serve you, and you're great. You're great. Mm -hmm. so, and so it works that way very, very well. And, so, and then, you know, that's a niche, quite frankly, that I wish more restaurants would do because simply they can just do it better. You know, I mean, that niche, that's a... 15, 20, 30, 40. I mean, obviously, if you're going to be doing two or 300 people, you need the bigger room. You need the, you know, you need, you need that kind of knowledge. And so you're going to go to a hotel or a catering facility. Uh, but to your point, that's a, you know, I, I think you made a very good point. If you're just going to want to have a, a, a good business lunch or uh, a social thing that's small, you know, 18, 30 people, maybe 35 people, you don't necessarily want to, nor do you need to go to the big, um, you know, catering halls or um, banquet venues or hotel banquet rooms if more restaurants would do that. Yeah, and, and, and the way I look at it, in some ways, it, it it's a great deal for the restaurant. You you can offer a limited menu. The service, the, you can have ser uh, service charges rather than tipping. The service is more simple. Um, and since you know how many people are going to be there, there's some predictability in terms of what you're going to need in terms of food, I would imagine. That's correct. Yeah. And, and uh, there's some peripheral benefits as well. I mean, um, I don't have, a, we've not done a real test on this or study, but I'm telling you, 70% of the people that come to private events have never even been to my restaurant. And they, and now and they you walk out going, going, well, I don't even know this, you guys were here. I've been by here, but I don't ever stop on my way to the office. This is amazing. I love this place. So, so we got a marketing new, effect. It's a great right. marketing fund. Right. Now they come back on right. date night and they wouldn't right. have even shown up if it weren't for That's the right. fact they were part of that event. That's right. And, and as our as customers throughout America, specifically in Houston, become more transient, become more carryout oriented and so on and so forth, it, it, we built a kitchen in there that can support just the private dining rooms. So it allowed us basically to be able to do more offsite catering and things that's difficult today. As an example, in the original kitchen, the original restaurant, I would get requests Mike, can you cater Sally's wedding, my daughter's wedding? Well, how, how many is it there? It's 80 people. What day? This day. Well, I can't do it. On a Saturday night, I can't get in there to do it. I'd have to cook the food at noon and get it out of the kitchen because we've got a single kitchen doing 200 guests basically in three hours mm -hmm. in the current restaurant. I couldn't pull it off, so I just have to decline. Now I've got a kitchen that I can do anything that's going on up to 80 people on the mm -hmm. private dining room. Plus, I can do 100, 200 catering while I'm at it. I can do both out of the same space and not affect the main restaurant, which is how we make our living. So, mm -hmm. so what has that done to your off-premise catering? Because I, I know you've been big in events and catering for a while. Uh, what was the effect that this expansion did for that? Well, we've actually only had the, the kitchen and the private dining area open a little over a year, actually 14 months licensed and mm -hmm. open for about a year. And we're doing at this point more than 10 private uh, caterings a week offsite today. And no we've kidding. yet we've that yet sounds to, like a lot. we've yet to promote it. We, wow. It sounds our, like a lot. Word of mouth. It's it's on our website that we yeah. do it and and we have a, a package that we developed uh, for private events and catering that you can take home that talks about what we can do whatever but we haven't really talked to anybody. We've only begun really in the last year really 
pointing out the private dining rooms through our social media program and so on and so forth. I don't really do any kind of print advertising or broadcast, as mm -hmm. you guys know. That's uh, mm -hmm. that's tough to prove those numbers beneficiary when yeah. you spend that kind of money. So we've really just begun, and so it's all set up, and we do pretty well with it. You're referring, I think, some of the things that I've done with my chuck wagon and other things. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. My, we don't know how some to, of the specialty events and exactly, that kind of thing. Exactly. So my experience in executing those is what encouraged me to say, well, we can do this. We've got a menu. We've got all I need is a kitchen mm -hmm. and a facility to be able to do it out of. And wow. So a lot of that came from uh, Chris, from uh, you know my my church relationships, my congregational relationships. That they always want to feed people on Wednesday night. They look around at each other and want to know who's going to go get the carryout food, the you know the sandwiches, and bring them back. And I would say, well, why do you why do you want to do that? Why don't we just build a kitchen and you know, we'll just do it in-house. I'll mm -hmm. teach you how to do that. And so I've done that a couple of times with congregations where <laughs> I build them a small commercial kitchen, help raise the money and donate some of the kitchen equipment and, and then teach them how do they do that. And there's wow. several congregations we've been a part of or still a part of that they still do that meal where they're still doing it out of a small commercial kitchen in the facility. Most churches, as you probably know, have a little bitty, you know, a manna range, and if they have that and a hot plate and one little <laughs> mm -hmm. residential refrigerator, and they want to feed 40, 50, 100, 200 people, they can't. They got to have it catered. They don't have money for catering. Yeah. So we, and so that's kind of the core at how I began doing more large kinds of events. It's it's. It's not that complicated for me. We know how to do it. Now I've got a facility that we can do it out of as it relates to Frank's. And so it's working out great. It's only an infancy. It's so we just, it just brings more and more revenue opportunities and more and more guest opportunities for us. As I said, very people come in and say, I, I didn't even know you had this thing. Okay. Or I'd never been in the restaurant, you yeah. know. Yeah. So Great market and branding yeah. for you. I always bring up this conversation with our guests, or at least I typically do. But I'm really interested in your perspective because you're... A, a true student of the industry um, and that is the whole third-party delivery um, market that's going on uh, I have to believe that um, your your restaurants involved in that in some yeah. degree but uh, as a student of the business you might be in a particular good position to explain to other operators how do you make this thing work because it ain't going away it isn't going away and, and again I was very skeptical about partnering with uh, any of the third-party relationships, whoever that may be, and we, we do have partnered with three of them at this particular moment. Uh, because I can't control the food when it gets out of the building, I can't see what's happening to it when the customer gets there and know that if it got to my house and the container was tipped upside down, I'm going to blame the restaurant, not the kid that brought it to the door. Right. And so that's always been our concern. So we were very careful about trying to make sure that our packaging was designed in a way and we did it in a way that would make sure any possible problem it would still get there in an acceptable way that was still mm -hmm. tolerable to the guest and then try to be careful about who's going to partner with us to be able to do that it's still a challenge to me mm -hmm. in that we try to get that way unfortunately i'm saying that we've catch third-party delivery drivers you know eating food out of the packages I've done, yeah. that's happened to me and uh that prompts a pretty high-level call from me to someone at that company, and you know, in a couple of cases, we just stopped using them. But it's a problem. But at the same time, that's happening in a wide-scale way with um, with grocery stores in terms of their pre-picking and their you just drive up and they put it in your car. Yeah, I can't. We can't ignore it, Barry. It's mm -hmm. going to be a part of our. So we've got to create the industry uh, standards, the packaging standards, the preparation standards. And, and move in a direction to do that, even to the point that we're now launching a box lunch program, mm -hmm. not with the third party delivery, but our own 
people. Whereas mm -hmm. an executive group wants to call me from an attorney and say, I've got 10 people in a meeting on Thursday. We've got a predetermined box lunch menu that we can sell them. We'll drop it off before the meeting. CDR delivery. We're, we're getting ready to do that. We haven't done that yet. Or we're either going to do it or, depending on the, the location where it's at, do it through a courier service. Where they just basically drain the box, drop the box, sure. they load it, they do it, we don't pick it up or whatever. That's an but, alternative. But the opportunities, there's too many opportunities not to do that. Right. Yeah. So, um, I think you have to monitor it. It's easy to say it's a carryout, just let it go. We do curbside carryout for any guest. And so I make it a point for not only my me, but my sons or management team members to go out there and talk to that guest at the car. Okay. See sweet. who it is, mm -hmm. first of all. It's most likely someone that comes in the restaurant all the time. So when they come in as a restaurant or in the restaurant, you can say, hey, how was that chicken fried steak last Tuesday night? Made that, that personal identity with them, if you will. Right. But also make sure it got handled in the right possible way. And now that information is like, it's like mass customization. That's right. That's so then I monitor... Um, any kind of information, both financial and guest input, on those uh, third-party partners that we have. What's happening? What do the guests, guests say? Because they each have some kind of platform that you can monitor what their guests are saying about their service, right. so on and so forth, and try to see where they're at. And then I insist on at least a quarterly meeting with the area people or regional people that are involved with that partnership to sit them down, whether it's a gather, Uber Eats, whoever it is, and say, walk me through what you see. What's happening with your team? What kind of problems are you having? That's, the, that's a consultant in me. I'm analyzing mm -hmm. their business mm -hmm. to make sure that I can foresee if we have any problems or not. Yeah, and so. you know, one of the questions I've asked other operators, and you know, again, I think that you might be somebody who could actually even provide an answer because the way you analyze this stuff is, is third-party delivery um, creating any incremental sales or is it just cannibalizing dine-in and takeout? From my, my initial research, and it's not quantitative, meaning I can't tell you exactly how the system works for me getting it, but my one-on-one -on -one conversation with our guests is the vast majority of our regular guests do not use a third-party system. Mm -hmm. uh, it's people that don't normally dine with us regularly. And in some cases, I know of people that are now regular customers because they got it on a, a gather delivery, let's say. Okay, and so you yeah, do anything to try to capture that market to bring them inside that, the, the store? Uh, I think we're just, when we give them that, 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 package of that package of food, if you will, there's a card in there that talks about who we are, a sample of what our menu is like, it talks about our private dining room, and a little history of who we are as a family. Mm -hmm. That's there about who we own, who's serving you today, if you will. Mm -hmm. God, that story so, is so they're important. open that up sure. and they see that, and yeah, I got to get to that pork chop, or whatever. But right. they mm -hmm. see that card that says, "Oh, it's not coming from just a, a little somebody's kitchen." They no. know that they're they know they're ordering from Frank's, but uh, the now way they know who Frank's if is. If you look at the software in terms of how they place that <clears> order. We're not really being placed at the front light in terms of who they're getting. They see I'm going to order from Frank's, but. Uh, the favors of the world and those, they're not basically making sure that th those people think that Fr Frank's is great. They just want the order. Right. And so we've got to do more to support that and check that and so forth. We've had a couple of situations in the last three years since we began where the customer was a customer that knew us mm -hmm. and called and said, this is what I got and this is how I got it. And we looked at the order and said, no, we sent it the correct way. And or, or this is the order that we got and that's not apparently what they said they ordered either Chris or I have actually gotten in the car and remade it and taken it to them personally at their house. Wow. Now, that's not fun on a Saturday night. No, no, but, <laughs> but, no, but that's a commitment Ms. to service. So I'm so sorry. I want to fix it right now. We didn't, and then I, I would then contact that service and say, let me tell you what I did to right. help you and me. 
Well, in today's market, I mean, either they're going to complain and tell every uh, thousand people on Twitter, or they're going to say, "Wow, these guys really stepped up," and tell a thousand people on Twitter. Yeah, but I don't think you can just say, oh, "Well, it was a third party and they delivered." No, no, really nobody, nobody's no, going to no. accept that. That's, that's my—that's the fear we all have. I think about those services. Is it is it economically feasible? I don't know if I can tell you that. We're we're selling the product today. We're sharing a commission of that sale, if you with them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes twenty, sometimes thirty percent. We wouldn't have the sale if we didn't do it at the same time. Uh, but at the same time, it only generates probably a minuscule amount in terms of our revenue. I mean, sure. we don't do a lot. It's 1% maybe of what our sales are for the week. I'll just gotcha. tell you, right. if that, if right. that. Could it be more? I think if we encourage that, put up Gather, put up Uber Eats, put up our third party's information, it would. I'm just not that comfortable to give them that 20% or 30%. Sure. It doesn't sound like you need it. It sounds like you have plenty of dine-in uh, traffic. But I think if it was a different fr a menu model, uh, if you're in a... Um, a sandwich kind of model or a carryout pizza model or something a little bit less check average pricing as we are in River Oaks, mm -hmm. it probably makes more sense. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thank yeah. you for that. This is just absolutely great information. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. There's so much here. I wish we had more and more time, but... Um, uh, but we but we don't. We have to kind of sort of wrap up. And so what we like to do towards the end, if you don't mind, is to kind of play with us a little bit in a manner to give our listeners a little bit more of an insight into you. And so we want to ask you the last five questions that are really not so much about the industry or job, but just more about you and your fun preferences. Sure. Ready to go? You bet. Okay, cool. <laughs> What's your favorite go-to comfort food item? Pizza. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm an old pizza guy. I would do that. I grew, a, I grew up, food, I grew right? up eating pizza at Campisi's in Dallas. I mean, oh, my kid, well, my, okay, there's a picture of me and Campisi's on Mockingbird sitting there as a kid on the bar, Papa Joe Campisi. Man, it's just pizza's my thing. Yeah, if Cheryl pizza. and I say, what do you want to, we're going to a show or a concert or something, what do you, we're going to pizza. I like We'll it. go to New York a few times a year to concerts or maybe a show and have a music performance and we'll go to Brooklyn to see some artist or whatever. Yeah. We're going to eat pizza. That's That's a, if you're going to get comfort, you're yeah. going to get pizza. Yeah, I like New York it. style pizza so, too, right, boy. Nothing like that. Um, what's your favorite restaurant anywhere in the world? Other than yours. Other, Other than, than yours. Frank's, and there's some great restaurants here. Mm -hmm. Probably uh, Carbone in, in New York and in, in, mm -hmm. in Greenwich Village. And mm -hmm. uh, probably it's because it's Italian. That's my go-to, if you will. My wife says I'm either Italian. You're not Irish, by the way. She says you're Italian or Mexican. We're not quite sure because if I had to eat every day, it'd be Italian or Mexican. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest with you. Occasionally, I'll put in a little Asian in there, or Chinese or Thai, yeah. but nah, that's my whole... That's no, my I like thing. the way you eat. Yeah. I think that's yeah. true. You, yeah. and, and it's, it's okay. You can probably. still be Irish as long as you keep <laughs> eating that way. That location's been there since the early 1900s and uh, not the same family, different chef, different people, but it's just an old school New York kind of Italian red tablecloth, red check tablecloth kind of place, but it's a bit upscale. That's probably my favorite. There's a lot what, in the country. What's your uh, favorite city or your favorite place to go if you could take a trip, a best trip perhaps? Uh, my favorite place to go or return to is Ireland, obviously, because of my family. Mm -hmm. And uh, both houses where my grandmother and grandfather grew up on are still there, still owned by family. I still communicate, and I've seen them multiple times. What so part of Ireland? Uh, he's from Atay, uh, County Limerick and County Cork, and she's mm -hmm. from uh, Van, which is now um, Newtown Sands, which is they're both right on the border of both counties. Wow. Uh, just south of Shannon, about 70 miles, if you will. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's pretty. that's I can't name a town in per se, but my wife and I spend a lot of time in uh, uh, New York. We love New York to go into New York, whether it be to shows or eat or concerts or whatever. We like New York, but my favorite is obviously Ireland, and mm -hmm. uh, because of my Sounds heritage good. and background, sure. sure, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. In terms of, 
an individual who made a significant impact on you personally or in terms of your businesses or sort of personally stands out who really uh, influenced you in a very positive way? I think it'd have to be Fred Shaw at the early Godfather's days. Mm-hmm. I mean, here I'm a kid out of college, didn't know it, a young son on the way. I, I had no idea, you know, I just thought I was trying to keep up and pay the bills. And mm-hmm. this guy said he recognized he thought something in me that he'd be willing to say, Will you partner with me and do something you've never done before? Because I've never done it all, he said. Wow. What an opportunity. And so yeah. I, I couldn't. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people over the years that I've met and blessed to know and have helped me and mentored and counseled with me. But that that probably was the single part part of my life that made it, in our industry, that, that probably made a difference, Fred Shaw. He got you a good start. He did. That's he did. great. Is there a particular book, you know, or maybe a passage or something that you like to uh, live by? You know, Chris, we're busy. Books are hard to read because I never can sit at time and we never take any time. Our industry, especially when you're involved day-to-day, is grinding. You grind every single day. But I think a passage probably, as I wrote it down, is uh, James 2.24. A person, just, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, and I think that's important not only in your faith but also in who you are every day in developing relationships. Mm-hmm. It's not that I know you or you know me. Uh, at some point in time, you may call upon me or need me. If I'm there, and I'm your friend, and mm-hmm. vice versa. If I'm not, I'm really not. And so that's really the kind of way that I look at it today. And if we, we all need more friends. Absolutely. And intimate friends, not just family. And, and uh, uh, we have a tendency to be busy and we push people out of our lives because we don't want the uncomfort of knowing that they may need us at some point or they may want something. And I think your life has changed as dramatically if you think about it the other way. I'm sure there's something you guys are going to need from me. I'll be there when you need me. Yeah. Life is, a relationship would be different, and I just use you guys as an example. That's a beautiful a, message, that's and really, thank you for that. Yeah. yeah, very, very good words to live by. Uh, Michael, I can't tell you how enjoyable this has been. I mean, I know we could just sit and talk for uh, sure. hours, but mm-hmm. uh, to share your experience, to share your story, the importance, and how you see the industry, I think are important principles for all of our listeners to take away. And so for that, I say thank you, and uh, we are going to have to find some way of bringing you back so we can talk a little bit further. Hope to see you again soon on the Corner Booth. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Chris Berry. Thank, thank you, you Mike. Thank you guys for having me. Best of luck. And special thanks to our friends at Lone Star Liquor Licensing Company for sponsoring today's program. Don't forget, listeners, whether your needs are retail, catering, wholesale, or manufacturing, whether you're opening or renewing, contact Lone Star Liquor Licensing at Lone Star liquorlicense.com Hey, thanks for joining us today on The Corner Booth. Until next time, it's Chris Tripoli and Barry Schuster saying thanks so much. Hope to see you again soon right here in The Corner Booth. Till then, go make it a good shift. <laughs>